Thank you, and it's so great to be here. Again, if we haven't met, I look forward to meeting you, and um, we're so glad you're with us. So as Leanne said, we are at the beginning of a new series. So I want to start off just with a, a little story. Something I've done quite a bit in my past, growing up and through high school, was swimming lessons. Has anyone taken swimming lessons? So I did lots of swimming. I got up to the point where I was a lifeguard in high school and university. But in all my swimming experience, I did not participate in speed swimming. Anyone a speed swimmer here? There's a one special skill, many that they have, that I don't have, and that is doing flip turns, as pictured here. So a proper flip turn in swimming, you are you know, sleek like Michael Phelps, going through the water, heading towards that wall, and in a, in a perfectly timed event, you hold your breath, you flip your body, twist your body, and push off the wall. But what usually happens when I would try it is I'm surging towards the wall, already exhausted, and uh, you know, it starts to un unravel pretty quick. I, I flip at the wrong time, either too far or too close from the wall. I, I don't sort of also rotate. I'll push off in some odd direction and come up sputtering. It's kind of a waste of my energy and time. So that's, uh, it's, it's sort of this, what I thought of is, there's nothing like being underwater and disoriented to have your body scream at you like, I need, to, I need air now. I need to know which way is up. You may have experienced it. Maybe you're swimming in the ocean or swimming in a pool and you know what it feels like. It can even be dangerous. So this just reminded me that uh, being oriented to the right side up when you're swimming is essential for life. So as Leanne said, we are in this new series about the paradoxes of Jesus, these, these difficult sayings. And uh, when we read them and people will say, like, Jesus and his words just, like, seem upside down. So if you've ever read the words of Jesus and you've felt confused or scared or, or disoriented or felt like you're sort of coughing and choking on his words, catching your breath, this series is for you. We're going to be looking at what are the values of our culture as opposed to Jesus's values and his right side up. So in this whole series, I have two things that are an invitation for you. That is to first, through Jesus' words, be intrigued by him. Be intrigued by him. And second, I hope that you would learn to trust and worship him. During this eight weeks, we're actually going to be, as you know, heading towards Easter. And in Easter, we're in the series of Lent. Lent is a time where historically we as Christians, uh, people in the church, would be counting the cost and grappling with hard things and Jesus' words. And so as this whole series and his words are going to invite us to, to count the cost and to consider what's on offer, what's, you might say, Jesus' good life? What's the good life he's pointing us towards? So let me start by reading just a few of the words that we're going to read this morning and then we'll pray. Matthew's gospel records this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these, for these words that seem upside down. Would you show us today what your right side up looks like? Would you show us what these words mean? and how we can follow you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Speaking of water. Many authors have scratched their heads at Jesus' words. 
and, and felt confused and wondered, like, what's going on? Why is he saying things about who inherits God's kingdom and who doesn't inherit? We, we don't like that language. Why is he saying stuff like, love your enemies and the first shall be last or blessed are the poor in spirit? What does it even mean? So if we're going to reflect, I think, on Jesus' words and his orientation of right side up, it'd be safe to say we should orient, know what is our, our default setting? What do we consider right side up? What is our good life? What's the good life? Every day we're straining towards some version of the good life. We're, we're training our kids to go towards these things that we consider the good life. So what is it? Are we properly oriented or are we disoriented in disorienting those around us? One author, John Mark Comer, said it this way. He said, your life is already organized around something. It just might not be Jesus. So whether we're conscious of it or not conscious of it, we're all straining towards some version of the good life. So these words I just read are part of what the Christians have called the the Beatitudes. There's eight Beatitudes at the beginning of the gospel. And so that word blessed could be translated probably better as happy or fortunate or well-off. So when Jesus says blessed are, it's like he's saying you're fortunate and you're pursuing God's good life when dot, dot, dot. So it begs the question, what do we think the good life involves? So I was in a conversation with Pastor Craig in Mount Pleasant and we were sort of contrasting this and we thought, okay, what would be some beatitudes or, or blessings of our city, our culture? We came up with a few. You'll see them on the screen. Try this on for size. The good life belongs to those who own a house for they will experience security. The good life belongs to those who eat an all-organic vegan diet and have a dedicated exercise regime for they will be healthy. The good life belongs to those who have many followers, for they will have influence. The good life belongs to those who are self-confident, for they will know where they are going. The good life belongs to those who are self-reliant, for they will take everything they need. So you see, we, we bring to the table, we don't usually express them like that or, or write them down or, or declare them. But we all bring to the table these certain underlying views of our life, and we have to ask, do they match Jesus' views? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is purposely turning upside down our normal views and trying to show us his views. And so we want to know what are his views. So you might say it like this, people who have God's good life, those who are poor in spirit, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. So again, it mixes us up because we hear the word poor, poor in spirit, and we don't like that. We don't like the word poor. You know, in Vancouver, we talk about eradicating poverty and homelessness, which we should. But what does it mean? In those Beatitudes I read, maybe the Beatitudes of our city, it's sort of like if you're self-reliant, self-confident, and wealthy, then you're blessed. And yet Jesus is talking about being poor in spirit. So to do that, to figure out what he means, I think if we look at who has gathered around and who is listening, actually might be a clue to what this means. So I want to rewind a little bit and and look at what's happening up to this point in Matthew's gospel. So what we've seen in in the gospel in chapter 4, 
Jesus has gone through a few things. He's, he's just gone away and had his baptism. And then the Spirit sends him into the wilderness where he, he faces temptation. He then leaves his hometown of Nazareth, heads east to this place called the Sea of Galilee. And we find him among crowds of, of peasant working people, people with no advantage, people far from the capital city, the religious center of his land. And then he starts saying these things which, which summarize his whole message. He says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, like turn away from stuff and turn towards God's stuff. So already from this, we can see something about what he means has to do with radical thinking, radical living, a change of maybe where we're at. Matthew then records this. He says, Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So apparently in that day, people came from as far as Syria, uh, well outside Jesus' normal people and land. And it says he, he healed them. So it seems that those who are poor in spirit seem to include these large, desperate crowds of, of people who are with nowhere else to go but to find Jesus and have their lives changed by Jesus. So one author commenting on this and trying to help us understand says it like this. Poor in spirit is not about uh, primarily about material poverty, but rather alludes to a concept that is in the Old and New Testament, that the poor or the meek are those who humbly trust God, even though their loyalty results in oppression and material disadvantage. So again, what is going on? I found a couple scriptures, one you may recognize. Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The word there is anav. We've heard Jesus say those exact words in, in, his new, in the New Testament when he's announcing his kingdom, that he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. And then again in Psalm 37, we read something similar. It says, but the meek, anav, will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So there it is, poor in spirit the meek, the humble. And then we, repeat, we read repeatedly in the gospel of these kind of people. Uh, one of my favorite chapters is Mark chapter 5, where we, we see uh, a very humble woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years and is destitute and out of money. And then we see a, a, probably a well-off synagogue ruler named Jairus. They both, in the same scene, come to approach Jesus. They both fall on their knees and beg Jesus for what they need. And they both get their answer. They both receive Jesus' healing. It seems that what attracts them is, is not their material poverty or, or, or their material wealth, but something in their heart. They are poor in spirit in their heart. So I was thinking about this, and there's a, a couple that I know that Cleans and I know well. It's her aunt and uncle in Alberta, and they remind me of this concept. So her aunt and uncle are, are a couple who started their lives out simply, they are in northern Alberta, and so he worked in construction, and so uh, to, to get their first house, they, they actually moved an old farmhouse onto a property. They, they refurbished it, and they, they did what they could. They were active in the church. They, they raised their four kids there, and uh, including one daughter who had a serious uh, physical disability. So in those years, those years of poverty and striving, they clung to Jesus. They were, they were poor in spirit. Now in their 60s, they've actually built up several 
very successful companies in, in construction and in the energy business. And um, they're, in this phase of life, their investment in foreign missions and local church work is very significant. Their life includes regular trips to Kenya where they support a large uh, ministry among orphans. And, and her life back home includes uh, a ministry that counsels and helps people uh, stuck in addiction. So on both ends of their lives, though, whether they were materially poor or now quite well off, they've had this, this same heart, this same poor in spirit heart of God. And I've seen what then the scripture goes on to say. It says that they will, they do inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I see them doing this and I see those around them inheriting God's kingdom of heaven because of what's gone on in their life. Which brings us to this point. Uh, it's a subtle one, but it says there is the kingdom of heaven. All the other Beatitudes talk about some kind of future tense. The, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. But this one says, no, poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here and now. I love how the message translates it. It says it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. So I believe that this beatitude orients us well to Jesus' right side up, where there's more of God and his rule in our life, here and now. So if that's what it means, how can someone become poor in spirit? How do we know if we are there? How could we get there? So I want to do two things. I first want to highlight what I think is a barrier to this, and then a strategy to get through that. So first, a barrier. One African theologian said it like this. The term poor in spirit has its roots in material poverty. So you can see he differs from the other scholar on this point. And he says this, someone who is materially poor has no influence, power, or prestige. They are often taken advantage of and exploited. This state of helplessness and destitution can and does lead to a deep dependence on God. So I think this African Christian brings an important reflection to us who I would say on average would be materially wealthy, the, the top 10%, I think we could agree, in our world at least. So as we read these paradoxical sayings and we, we read Jesus talk about poor in spirit, I think it's important to remember and to admit that if we live in a city like this, if we have an education, any kind of stable job, any kind of stable housing, social safety net, then we are not, by nature, naturally like the crowds who've crowded around Jesus that we've read about in the scripture. So the barrier that we'll face is the barrier, the ability of meeting our own needs. That's a barrier. The African author goes on to say it like this. Those who are poor in spirit are thus those who have realized their own utter helplessness on account of sin in their life and who acknowledge their complete dependence on God, not just for spiritual needs, but also for material needs. Such a person develops a certain detachment from material things and an attachment to God. And here's his word for us. The Westerner needs to learn detachment from material things. Those who have this attribute are God's people. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who belong to it have learned the secret of utter dependence on God, leading to complete obedience to his will. Straight words. 
So he, he ties this concept of poor in spirit to both material and spiritual poverty. And he boils it down to our willingness, our lifestyle of being dependent on God and his will. So it's a great description. And, you know, tucked in there is a warning that something about our material wealth can be a barrier. However, I want you to hear me say, you can be financially poor and you can be greedy and selfish or you can be materially very rich and you can be uh, generous and humble. So really it is truly a, a state of heart. It's really a state of heart. But I notice, and I don't know if you notice this, the, the more I have, it seems to have this sort of sneaky power in my life to sort of just clamor and grab for more and more of my heart. So again, it, it's a barrier. And I think it, 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 takes, it takes prayer. It takes vigilance. Because the more we have, we, we get to the state where I am my provider. And God who says, I'm your provider, it's sort of this competition of who provides. And, and the stuff we have can tend to, to give us a sense of belonging and security that we just have to be careful with. And so I think Jesus is calling us, what we're going to read here, to just a posture of being open-handed. Okay, so if that's our barrier, what's our strategy? I want to suggest a strategy is just simply staying hungry, staying hungry for God. So how would we do that? I have a friend who regularly sees a spiritual director, and he told us this story. He says that when he was new to seeing a spiritual director, this is a, a person who helps you talk about what's going on in your life and how you might encounter God. He found himself reporting that he always felt like a failure. Spiritually, in my life, I feel like a failure. So he would repeatedly say this time after time. And so one time the spiritual, spiritual director said this, Perhaps this feeling you're having right now is a place of blessing. Not because you feel like a failure, but in your words reflects a hunger for God and a longing and a recognition of your deep need for him. What if that feeling is an opportunity to see it as a gift in your feelings of being spiritually poor, you are actually hungry for God? So I think my friend's spiritual director was right that gnawing feeling that we sometimes have that we're falling short and we need God. We don't want that feeling to be there, but, but what if that's actually a blessing? It would be like going to your doctor and saying, hey doc, you know, I don't know what's going on, but every morning when I wake up and then again at 12 and 6, I just feel this gnawing hunger. Your doctor would say, well, that's normal. That's your body telling you you need food. And so that same spiritual feeling is God's way of saying you're spiritually hungry. Will you reach out to me in that hunger? Or again, like the barrier, will you reach out to yourself? So just like physical hunger, this spiritual hunger helps us stay hungry, helps us stay like that crowd pointed to Jesus for all that they had. So how would we do that? I think this strategy could uh, involve at least two things. One would be being sacrificial. So I think as we generously share our resources, so Aaron was here, he told us of one way we could share our resources, share our time, share our advantage with others who have less advantage and consciously move in the, the opposite direction of our society. You, you may have heard it being called downwardly mobile. But when we do it, we actually end up with less. Are we okay with that? Even if it leads us to more of God, it's again, paradoxical, countercultural. So it involves being sacrificial. 
And two, I think it, it involves something in the mind of, of staying conscious of our, our neediness. Again, that's the thing we push away. But let's, what would happen if we would stay conscious? What would happen if we recognize these areas of greatest need in our lives as a place not of weakness, but of great opportunity to seek God? So I could ask you to reflect. What are you going through? What kind of, what kind of brokenness, poverty of any kind, neediness, do you have? Like, what ways are exhausting you? Jesus says, blessed are you if that's your life. Because in your neediness, there's an opportunity to receive a gift. In your need, Jesus is saying, bring it to me. Bring it to me. Rather than than numbing it the way we do in our society or, or trying to forget about it in the ways we have the ability to, he says, bring it to me. Because what he wants to do is in our pain, meet us. In our lack of opportunity, find that he has opportunities for us. He wants to bring us new joy, new perspective. And I think as we do that, we will find resonance with this statement that yours is the kingdom of heaven. By which he means slices of of God's presence and his power will just sort of shine into our heart and into those around us as we live this way. Heaven breaking in to our life right now. That's what Jesus is on about. So again, Jesus' words, his paradoxes, strike us like being a swimmer in a pool, sending us tumbling and coughing for breath. Just like being a good swimmer involves trial and error, I think living in this way as Jesus is poor in spirit involves trial and error. Some people give up on swimming. They go back to, to walking, to biking. But others stick at it and keep persisting and keep learning when no one else is doing it. That's part of Jesus' call. It's a difficult call. It's a, it's a lay down your life, count the cost kind of call. It's not easy, but it's good. So when we face these barriers, when we're, when we're sucking in water and sputtering for right side up, let's reach out to Jesus. Let's trust that he's got a way for us. A way that I think as we practice it will be like what he says later in the scriptures. We'll, we'll be like birds of the air and flowers of the field that don't toil for their own food, their own clothing, but instead trust our Father in heaven and find that he clothes us, he provides for us. So to end, I actually want to, I think it's good to, to give ourselves a way to practice this. What if we could practice this staying conscious of our neediness together right here? So I'd like to actually invite Matt up to help us do that. So what we're going to do is engage in a, in a short activity that I'd like to call, or that has been called, uh, gospel contemplation. So the way we'll do that is I'm going to go back and I'm going to read some of the verses in Matthew 4 and 5. And I want to invite you to use your imagination. Some authors have called it holy imagination. Sometimes we discount our imagination, but I, I use it a lot. And I feel that our imagination can, can put us in that crowd. So I'm going to read these verses, and I'm going to invite you to imagine yourself around that lake in that crowd as if you've brought your need. Maybe you've come from far away. And you said, I think I'm ready to seek Jesus with this. I think I'm ready to stop doing whatever I was doing to fill that need on my own. So as I read and as Matt plays a bit, I actually invite you to sit comfortably, 
Close your eyes. You may want to open your hands. Take a few deep breaths. And just be prepared to use your imagination to meet Jesus. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News spread about him all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. So again, pause. Imagine yourself in that crowd. Who are you? What need are you bringing? saw the crowds he went up on the mountainside and he sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope with less of you there is more of God and his rule let's pause and just Allow Jesus' words to wash over us with whatever we're bringing to him. So imagine you're laying it down at his feet, you're humbly bowing, and you're allowing him to minister to you. thank you that we can gather in this way all these years later hearing these same words picturing ourselves around you in person hearing you speak to us in our need Lord you're here with us today your words about being poor in spirit the humble the meek they're still true today maybe more than ever would you help us in our city in our world with what we face humbly bow humbly come to our knees in all sorts of ways through our day, through our week that involves all parts of us, our advantages, our education, our, our finances. Would you help us to humbly bow, humbly meet you and find that you fill us, that through you, you give us more than enough, more of you, more of becoming our true selves. We thank you, Lord. Would you meet us powerfully as we continue to worship? As we meet you in communion, we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.